Aloha, and we're live on another episode of the Microbial Secret Society podcast. Today, we have a really special guest that I'm really thankful for. We're interviewing Crow from, he's the, co, he's the host of a popular weekly podcast called Crow 777 Radio. That's with uh, two R's at uh, crow777radio.com for the live show. And it's hosted on the Truth Frequency Radio. He hosts his own website and his own YouTube channel with over hundreds of videos featuring podcasts of his astrophotography work. Um, he's best known for his capture in September 16, 2012 of a popular event that's now referred to as the Lunar Wave. Um, he's documented and recorded this several times since as well as others. And as Crow's popularity grew on YouTube, so did his censorship and limitations to produce anything that resembles freedom of speech or uncensored content. And Crow has spent most of his time challenging and questioning the world around us. The Crow 777 podcast is a place where everything is challenged and people are free to communicate their ideas. If the podcast was summed up into one statement, it would be the belief. Belief is the enemy of knowing. So uh, with that, I want to welcome in Crow. Th thanks for joining hey. us today. Hey, thanks so much for having me, guys. Hey, and uh, yeah, great to meet you too. I'm, I'm excited to meet you as a uh, content producer and seeing that you are running your own YouTube channel and that you've garnered a... a huge audience around a, a very interesting topic. So, yeah, well, thank you for being here. Hey, it's, it's my privilege. You know, um, I get a lot of requests and I'm very interested in, in the grassroots movements. But when I saw you guys were into natural farming techniques uh, from Asia, I was all in. And uh, I guess I should have asked, are, are we live right now or are we pre-recording? Uh, we're pre-recording this. We're live. So, well. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, pre-recording, but. It's live. <laughs> so do I get to pick one or live the other? In the I, I get it. You guys are pre-recording. This will be broadcast later, I'm assuming. Correct. Okay. So where would you guys like to go? Well, I was going to let David kind of lead off. He had, a, he had a few questions here while, while we're in the first hour. So I figured start off with that. Yeah. So I kind of wanted to... Um, simplify natural farming and kind of the, the work that we do to I explain it to you and then try to kind of go beyond those kind of correlations. But I think in a simplified way, we go to areas where the native indigenous forest biology is intact and we collect it and preserve it with a food source and we preserve it in time with sugar and then we kind of re bring it back to life with different fermentations and tinctures and solutions that we create like as ho homemade biostimulants or natural fertilizers and that kind of reawakens this microbial intelligence that's living in in the soil that's been here all, all along and you kind of talk a lot about the occult on your show which i really appreciate and these esoteric things and in the, the word occult just means hidden so that that which is hidden and i think the kind of the microbial life and the microbiome is, is hidden to us in nature and it's it's kind of been this like the secret that's that's kind of been there all along and, and there's a way that we can kind of tap into that intelligence. And, and even, even this idea that if we go to areas, say there's like monolithic sites or ancient pyramids or these old relics of places where there's no human disruption and we're able to preserve that intelligence and kind of capture it and collect it and then re-bring it back to life that maybe maybe the intelligence in the soil can reawaken our consciousness to these to this idea of, of like uh, more advanced technology, more advanced civilizations, but just in a way that's more harmonious with connection to nature. So 
Well, I, I like those ideas. It sounds like what you're describing is almost like a gardening alchemy. Um, might be a, one way to describe what I think you just told me. Um, and it's pretty clear at this point. Uh, we've come so far away from nature that it's doing us harm. Uh, I think one thing that alchemy teaches us is if we knock off doing the wrong thing for 50 or 100 years, uh, nature will pretty much put things back in a better condition. Um, it's hard to know uh, for the most severely affected areas of the world how long that will take, but uh, just the basic idea of alchemy, transmuting one of the four elements constantly. I think Earth may be the ex exception there. Um, Earth is a bit more static, as I understand it, than the other three so-called alchemical elements, the philosophical elements being air, water, fire, those, those ideas. Um, so I truly appreciate what you're doing, um, and I think it's a great thing. And by the way, microbial thing, that's maybe the definition of a cult. We can't see it. We have to experience it and get in tune with it to understand it, um, unless we're looking through a microscope, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah. Drake, what was that quote that you mentioned to me the other day about, I think you said it It may have been by Leonardo da Vinci, but it may have not been, but I, I think it kind of correlates to what we're talking about right now. Um, so, it, so it's an ancient kind of thing. It, I did see it as a meme div, um, attributed to Leonardo da Vinci, but the thing says there are three types of people. There are those who who never see there are those who see when they're shown, and there are those who see. Um, I've actually run across this, and I think you're correct. I think it is attributed to Da Vinci. I've never checked to see if that's correct. As a matter of fact, I think I wrote a blog uh, where I may have used that idea because it does pretty well express uh, the current conditions that we find ourselves in. So many new ideas coming online um, and divergent groups of people deal with the new information in different ways. One of the problems we see currently is this idea that's been fostered on social media that if you don't agree with me, then we can't be friends. This is also fostered through the nonsensical political parties here in the United States, the red and blue idea, um, used to divide people. As a matter of fact, the banker, the central bankers from London came here in 1924 to speak to the bankers of the United States as we were getting a central bank, and uh, they expressed their glee in having established the political parties so that they could use them to get people to fight endlessly about things that don't matter. So the quote that you expressed there, I think it's particularly salient, because um, people should think about this. Um, just because two parties or two groups or two individuals have different ideas, there's no reason um, that that should be divisive in any way. Uh, we live in an age where new ideas are going to be the norm. Nothing is going to be the same as we move forward. I think we can all agree on. Well, well, that's actually one of the things I wanted to to address from what you were saying earlier about about the Earth kind of regenerating after you know no disturbance for about sixty years. And uh, one one thing I've noticed is that I think that used to be true. But I've noticed that as we're killing off our indigenous microbiome via our petroleum-based um, releasing toxins into the atmosphere society that we have today, that I think we've damaged, like we're damaging the, the microbial secret society that lives there that are these alchemists that are able to regenerate the land. So, I, so what I see right now changing in the world is that our, our, the resilience that used to be just leave it alone and it will get better. We've damaged those alchemists that are those hidden that we didn't realize were the regenerators of the earth. Well, um, I, I think you're making a good point. Uh, the overall arching ideas that I have drawn from alchemy is that people can do a lot of damage, but nature is so perfect that at some point, uh, it will put itself back to some semblance of normal normalcy. I don't, I don't have much experience with the microbiome you're speaking of, and I do imagine that it could take a very long time to get back to a normal, a no, what what we might consider normal and natural. And I don't understand whether it will be different than it once was at that point. But you know, just just the fact that I'm speaking with you and you guys are aware of this and you're doing what you can to preserve it. I think that's emblematic of the time. We've come so far 
from nature and the current era we find ourselves. And many people are sick. Many people can't think very well because of all the chemicals they've ingested from the fluoride in their water to the processed food. Don't even get me started on the, uh, the medicines, what, what passes for medicine these days, basically chemicals. Um, people are starting to really have a yearning to get back to something more healthy. They want to feel better. They want to feel better about life. And from my point of view, human beings do not create truth. Human beings recognize truth. That truth is created in nature. So maybe there's hope. You know, I, I get what you're saying, but I always try to put a positive spin because I don't feel like all is lost. Uh, we may have a rough road, indeed. Um, but when enough human beings put their mind to a thing, um, we've seen in the past, it can make big change. And right now, it sure feels like a lot of people are beginning to look back to the older ways, back to nature, starting to think that maybe this artificial age of technology is pulling us way too far um, away from the natural world. And, and I hope that's true. And if it is true, I think there's real hope. Hmm. Yeah, I think, I think it's important to be able to maintain that positive outlook of, of hope and um, momentum and, and having the ability to create a better, a better future, a better tomorrow, even if, if our, if our path or our way right now is, is not the easiest, that doesn't, that doesn't mean that we can't still, you know, learn and evolve and, and grow and kind of practice these things. Um, the, yeah, the, the, the one, the, uh, an, another kind of topic that I didn't know if you could kind of go a little bit deeper in is on, on one of your past episodes where, Crow, where you talked about the RH factor, um, you and Jason did research where you started like kind of going back into where you were finding these like occult practices, these esoteric practices that were happening in like Neolithic farmers. And they were almost like these shamanic people that, that live in caves and, and stuff. And, 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 and I just thought, I thought it was interesting because I, I recently just kind of moved to a, like a, purchase a farm in in Hawaii and there's like six caves here and I'm, I'm super fascinated by them and I like spending time in them and it um I don't know I think there's and there's even there's like Hawaiian lore and Hawaiian mythology of like these beings these like minahuni that like supposedly could like be living in the caves that are like these yeah these these ancient beings that used to help um the Hawaiians that when the when the white people kind of settled here and kind of like destroyed the culture because yeah yeah that, that you know that's this is a concern everywhere and <laughs> it's kind of when you look at it, it it kind of bends the mind one of the smallest countries in the world took over so much of the world and changed so many indigenous cultures and then of course western religion uh specifically the vatican you know they did that in spades they went to so many places and ended indigenous languages, practices, cultures. Um, and not only that, they've changed the way we think too, which is unfortunate. Um, but the RH thing was quite an eye-opener. We went at it twice. The first time we went at it, we found so much conflicting information. We walked away with our heads spinning. So we got Wayne McCroy involved because he's a researcher at a high level who gets it. And we began to realize that the RH factors, positive and negative, apparently handle taking waste out of the body in two different ways. People who are RH positive have an antigen on their blood cell, which is takes its name from the rhesus macaque monkey, because the great apes have these antigens as well. There's other animals too. But apparently those blood cells handle eliminating waste from the body. And we found in the research that it is claimed nobody quite knows how RH negative people remove waste from their body. And this opened up a whole, a whole door of problems. Uh, and I think it relates to what you guys are into because if we could go back in time, any given blood group or culture that has some semblance of familiar blood groups within the group, they would be eating and living in a certain way. So you could almost say 
that that blood type is eating according to nature in their area. We've moved so far away from this. But as we got in, we began to realize how is it that a pharmaceutical company comes up with some supposed drug and hands it out to everybody, whether they're RH negative, positive, A, A, B, O, any blood type. Here you go. Here's this medicine for everybody. We began to realize there's a problem with this thinking. And what's more, um, we imagine, because we can't be totally sure, because it's hard to substantiate the numbers we're given, that roughly maybe 15% of the world is RH negative. Um, and we began to look at things like the Guidestones, where they would, they're making the claim, and these edifices carved in stone aligned to the sky clock, that we really need to just cut down humanity to 500 million people, half a billion people. Any more than that's too much, and whoever put those stones there is the god of the universe and gets to decide who stays and who goes. But what we realize is that roughly if you removed every RH positive person, those would be the numbers you're left with. But to get back to the topic at hand, I do think there is something to understanding a diet that matches your origins and your blood type. Like the idea, some of the research I'm doing now uh, puts forward the idea that the Hawaiians and the Polynesians are an original, what you might call a root race. Um, they're not a combination of other peoples, supposedly. Um, to, to come to be who they are. And in that, we know they were seafaring, they had all those tropical fruits. So by logical deduction, we can begin to make some assumptions about what their blood groups might be eating that's good for them. Um, mm. And we're just now starting to look at these ideas, but once you start getting into the RH factor idea, boy, is it hard to get things that you know are correct because so many contradictory things have been said. And to be honest with you, I think it's a lot about the European research. Apparently the European research has spent a lot of time saying anything to do with African people um, is not true. And the African people did the same thing in reverse. Um, so it's, it's a heck of a thing to plow through, but I absolutely do accept that probably blood type and the types of foods and medicines you would take for that blood type, probably a very good idea. Well, that, that's very similar to what we do with the with the microorganisms. Is there's these there's these ideas that that in you know um, agricultural colleges today they teach just this general um, system of just you know feeding the plant, but they don't they don't think about the soil and how how that living soil makes a difference. So if you if you have like like a you're talking about blood types, I'm talking about soil microbes. But if you have a certain fertilizer and you're using it and you're not paying attention to the soil type that you're using it on, and similar would be like if you're using a medicine but you're not paying attention to the blood type, then the effect on the, the plant or the organisms around is going to be significantly different. You know, I kind of feel like, I don't know if you guys caught the episodes we've done with Phoenix Aurelius who does alchemy. Um, a lot yeah, of it, yeah, with the spagyrics. Right. Well, he, he does other things too, but he does a lot of plant-based alchemy. And one of the things he's tried to do is to create microbes that will revive damaged so soil. But I see a difference in what he's doing. He's addressing the fact that the soil has been damaged because people poured chemical fertilizers or anything people do that's un unhelpful because they don't know any better or because they don't care. But if he was in tune with what you guys are doing, then the efforts on his part might become more preservation of what existed historically. And the reason I bring it up is because Phoenix has related stories to me of him going out into the wilderness areas as a youngster. Um, and so he, he understands uh, the natural environment to the point where even some of the spiritures he does, he goes out into nature to harvest the plants from nature. And I think we can all agree um, there's a big, big difference that people don't recognize between going into a forest that's untouched and harvesting some plant matter and then doing the same thing in your garden. I'm not saying what is in your garden is bad, but I'm saying what nature makes will always be better until you come in tune with nature. Mm. And I, I would I would further just like elaborate like that that thing of nature that you're talking about, I believe to be like this secret society, like this this um this microbe soil that we didn't even know about previously. 
I, I agree. I think every secret society that's ever existed on Earth is encoding aspects of what human beings could figure out about the natural world. There's nothing more to it. That's it. And as a matter of fact, I would go further to say that with my knowledge, as limited as it may be, but with a lifetime of looking, um, there's commonality across so many so-called secret societies. But what you find endlessly is the encoding of the sky clock, the phases of the moon, uh, what the moon's doing, where the sun is, the equinoxes, the solstices, always encoded in these ideas. And what is that? Well, we know what that is. That has to do directly with how people make food, doesn't it? Because when winter is coming, uh, you darn well better have your ducks in a row because the allegory for hell is coming. Not where you guys live, but in a lot of places in the world, it's going to freeze and you won't be able to grow things. Um, that may be part of the origins of these things. Uh, so I'm with you all day long. I think that secret societies are basically just encoding what human beings have figured out to be correct about natural aspects of the world. And of course, unfortunately, maybe some of them have been perverted to some degree doing unhelpful things. But at the base of why they existed originally, in my view, it has to do with the natural world and keeping secrets alive about what human beings could figure out about the natural world, the only place that truth resides. Yeah, you got anything to add there, David? Yeah, that the that basically we we can observe nature and I, I think in this example of the microorganisms, I think it's a direct connection to nature and, and the intelligence the intelligence that's coming from the soil and from the past because like the the microorganisms are creating a new generation every thirty minutes. So one week is about 10,000 years. So if you're going to a, a place that's like, say, hundreds or thousands of years old, that's never been disturbed, imagine how, how much intelligence is in that, that microbial soil. And then being able to start interacting with those microbes and, and bringing that to the, to the masses. I, I think it's really about like, yeah, it, you know, in today's world, we, we're, we talk about like the 5G and these different networks and we're trying to get a faster and a, a stronger connection and things like that in, in the digital realm. But it, it's really the same thing in the microbial of creating these fungal connections and these networks that are already there, but they're just, they're being preserved and fed and then they're starting to expand. And then as, as you expand, then you become more aware. It's like the same thing as you spend more time in your garden or on the earth, as you start interacting more, you're going to become more aware of, of what's around you. That well, I can, you that, yeah. Sorry, we, we had a lag. I didn't mean to step on you, but I can give you examples that prove exactly what you're saying is important. Uh, first of all, we're in an age now where most of what we observe is artificial. Not too long ago, human beings did a lot more observation of the natural world. But as an example, Japan, um, I always admire so many of the Asian indigenous techniques which have come forward. Um, Japan is a good example. When they get ready to do sustainable things or healthy things, they don't mess around. And one good example of the microbe idea is there's one place that I'm aware of in Japan that still makes soy sauce in the original way it was ever made. They had an earthquake. They have these massive vats where they do the fermentation and uh, what had happened, no, I think it was miso, actually, sorry, not the soy sauce, but that is also another fermented product. It was miso, and they had an earthquake which damaged the building, and they were totally unconcerned with the production, all the things that had to do with production. The only thing that mattered was the microbes in those vats. Could they save the microbes in those vats? They lost some of them, but luckily they recovered some of the microbes in those vats, which allowed them to continue making this miso, which has been a staple for hundreds of years and so important. And as you and I think both know, some of the most nutritious foods are, are based in fermentation, things like miso or real soy. Uh, in the West, maybe we could kind of compare that to cheese. It's a similar thing going on. Maybe, I don't know if it's at the same level. But um, there, there's a direct example of how important they've spent all these hundreds of years working with the microbes to do the fermentation to get a particular quality out of this miso. Similar thing goes on with other fermented products in Japan. So I, I don't think it's 
it's arguable what you stated. Uh, we still have real living examples in this world. Oh, that that example there makes me makes me think so much about us humans and um, and how vital our microbiome is. Yet yet today, um, you know, Western medicine is is about doing um, cesarean sections where they remove babies so they don't come out of the vaginal canal and get get all the their inheritance of their mom's microbes all over their skin. They, we now promote formula so babies don't milk or don't nurse um, from, from their mother's teeth where they would inherit all this other microbiome that would come through, through the mother's milk into the baby's gut. And then as soon as the child grows up and it, and it goes to school and gets a snotty nose, we give it an antibiotic to knock back this inheritance that we have had for you know hundreds of generations just like that miso. We had this perfect microbiome and just our modern society just steals and knocks that away from us. I'm, I'm with you all day long. Um, what this is doing is making weaker human beings, uh, less capable human beings, uh, human beings that are further detached from the natural world, which is the only thing there is here, by the way. Um, I say there's only two things that matter, uh, nature and the sky clock. Without those two things, nothing happens here. Uh, nothing that human beings could interact with at any rate. And there is talk, you know, I mentioned the Guidestones earlier, that's one conspiratorial example. I don't think it can be denied. Somebody did this in stone in multiple languages and aligned it to the sky clock. There's not that many places in the world that could have pulled that off, by the way. But my point here is there seems to be an active campaign in our world right now to weaken the average human being, not just mentally, but physically, uh, the health, all of it to lower them to a level where they're almost helpless, indefensible. They can't think at the level human beings used to think. Their health is severely damaged compared to just a few generations ago um, before all this corporatized food came to be and uh, purposely, you know, you, you, it's, it's systemic at this point. As an example, anyone knows that if you eat junk food, you're putting junk into your body. What most people have forgotten is you are what you eat. So there's this culture where, yeah, I can have this Reese's peanut butter cup and it's no big deal. But what you're forgetting is that you're making a choice. That Reese's peanut butter cup is going to contribute to what you are. And what makes it worse is the saying that the company who makes Reese's peanut butter cup has put on their package. It says, we're not sorry. Well, I'm a thinking human being, so I'm going to ask the question. Reese's, the board of Reese's. What do you mean by you're not sorry? What's going on that that is an appropriate tagline for a consumable product that you're putting out for human beings? And I suspect all these things are related, and this is exactly what I'm talking about. Before another generation goes by, it's going to be likely that we're going to have two groups of average human beings left, um, some that still have some thinking capability and some level of health, and then the other side of that coin is going to be people who are nearly drooling. So much of their thinking ability has been removed and their health is going to be in the basement to the point where maybe we'll see lifespans diminishing abruptly. Hard things to know, but it is not hard to know that this is currently going on in our world and it's being fostered by corporations and some of the biggest corporations. And from my point of view, that's why what you guys are doing matters. That's why I put down everything I'm doing today to come be with you for two hours to support the natural ideas that you're engaged in. Yeah, I really appreciate, yeah, you, you recognizing and um, supporting the microbial um, consciousness and the expansion of it. And yeah, I think, I think that that point's pretty interesting about like the, the Reese's and, and um, the company and, and, you know, reflecting more on like the integrity and like what it really means to, to produce and create a product like that. And, but, but then on the other side, it's like, you know, we can, we can go down that rabbit hole and get it. I feel like it's easy to get stuck in that, that way of thinking sometimes and get into a negative thought, but um, it's like, we we've talked about you know in Korea they have this GCM glutenese chitinese microorganism technology where basically they're taking the equivalent of like a Reese's cup but it would be like, like chemical fertilizer and then they're brewing these 
microorganisms that um, at a certain temperature that kind of eat all the that gnarly stuff and they transform it into a food that is then um, bioavailable that is healthier for the microorganisms, which is what kind of fermentation is. It's like the microorganisms are breaking down things before it becomes available for us. And, and that, that method isn't, <clears throat> I wouldn't say that's the most like tapped in and connected to nature and the, <clears throat> the highest level of quality, but I think it's a step forward in the right directions to be able to purchase that Reese's cup today because it's on the shelf and it is available and then being able to use some sort of alchemical process to transform it into something that is then beneficial. I, I think it's the same. Yeah. We, it's the same thing you mentioned about cheese and stuff. And it, and it's like, um, there's a fermentation that we make with, um, some sort of rice water or a starch water it could be rice or sweet potato or ulu or taro or, you know, different things, bread, um, and you basically put this little rice wash water out and it becomes this landing pad for all these um, microorganisms. And we're, we're, we're trying to collect lactobacillus. So then once we kind of collect that, you can extract the fluid from, from that dish that's been out for 24 to 36 hours and then add that like middle layer of, of that serum as an inoculant and, and add one part to that, the 10 parts lactose or milk. And um, then you, you, you kind of have this culture of like this, um, you'll get cheese and then you'll get whey. And the whey is the probiotic microbe that you would find in yogurt or coconut water. Or, um, and, and, and that's a microbe that, that is actually able to, it eats lava rocks and turns it, them into soil it gets rid of like heavy chemicals and oils and and it starts to pull like these toxic things out and it and it also reduces uh um smell so you know drake has a farm where he he raises chickens and pigs and there's no smell there's no cleaning there's no there's no hormones there's no like vaccinations of the animals where you know traditionally that's not the case and it's just due to this like a big part to this one microorganism that we can collect like any and 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 you the best way to do it would be with like raw milk from a cow or go that's local but you can turn this like babylonian dairyman's milk or these thing that you get in the inner city like anyone in the inner city can get water and rice and milk and then they can make and sugar to, pr to preserve it when you pour it off and they, they could start applying this in the cities and you know, it would, it would, I think it would change everything. So, well, you, you bring up a couple things that I can talk to. First of all, um, the value in what you're doing, uh, has to disclude the idea of pasteurization. And I think all three of us are aware of why pasteurization is here. The idea is, is that a product can be on the shelf longer, but what has actually happened, you're getting no life. It's sterilized. Um, so in the United States where I live, I would estimate that the average person I bump into on the street, unless they've eaten a harvested fruit of some kind, have not ingested any life into their body, life essence. Um, and this is one of the problems because these laws ensure that even the cheese, you haven't eaten any living cheese if you live in this country, it's pasteurized. The life has been cooked out of it. Um, and these are all problematic things. And to get back to Korea, I've been there twice. Um, and I was impressed with the older ways that have survived up into modern times. And I've long thought that this will protect them to some degree, at least for a while, um, to this just nonsensical high-tech push of, of artificial material everything. Uh, ja Japan, to some degree, has these things still available. China's maybe in big trouble because they're going high-tech so quickly and westernizing and becoming capitalists so quickly. But in Korea... I was unaware the first time that I was there and ate that just the colors of their food are used where the indigenous Koreans understand that if they want a full balanced meal, they need all these assorted colors, which are always with the food. They have things like kimchi, which could be described as living. Um, and that is almost every household has a version of kimchi. And this is slowly coming under attack. 
Um, but the point is, is they still have these ideas in existence. They're not lost. Um, we don't have to rediscover them. And, you know, that's from the get-go. When I looked you guys up quickly and I saw the connection to the Korean ideas, I'm all about this. Um, these are critically important things, and we can learn so much from these older ideas. Well, so, yeah, that's that's awesome you've been to Korea. I've, I've been there... Um, nine times now I think over nice. the years to to go learn this natural farming and the first time I went it, um, it just blew me away yeah. that that I flew all the way around the world and it was like people were moving faster and consuming more resources over there and and it was just a, a whirlwind for me um, but then uh, getting getting to know their food you're, you're entirely correct there people are eating living food you know, there and and a lot of people. There's open markets. There's there's access to living seafood that you can purchase, um, and then the the fermentation as well. That that your every every family has a big clay vessel where they'll take the the cabbage and they'll make their own kimchi. And each region, each family kind of has their own microbes, just like you were talking of the miso being passed down. Right and and their location that makes their own distinct thing, but what I've noticed where you're talking about that the old traditions are there. The last time I was there, um, we went to a, a farm, and they had a big closet, and and we were looking at chicken food and how are they making chicken food, and we asked, oh, what is this? And he said, well, that's my kimchi machine, and so what this machine did was it kept it this real constant temperature and it, you know, and it helped it develop faster because you're not getting the cold winter and then the warm summer, which, which would change the, you know, the temperature will change what microbes growing. And so now they're using technology to, to like optimize quote unquote this process, but now they're homogenizing it just like this pasteurization concept where it's like you're limiting the microbes because you're, you're, you know, concentrating these things. So that's what I've been seeing. Well, I'm, I'm with you all day long, and I'm actually aware of what you're speaking about. As we entered into the modern age and Koreans started to get refrigerators, you'd notice a lot of families had two refrigerators, one for the kimchi because it's got an odor, and one for all the other food. But you see, in the Asian cultures, there's a critical thing going on. In Japan, it's maybe epidemic. It's hard to see. Um, their birth rate has dropped to the point where Jason and I did an episode where it looks like if their birth rate doesn't climb in three generations, they could be headed for extinction. And this is not what we're told. We're told that human beings are exploding and there's going to be way too many. And the truth is, is when I was young, all the families around me had two or three children. Now in this neighborhood where I live, there's maybe two or three children in a four-mile radius where every household used to have two or three children. Um, and in Japan, it's starting to reach epidemic. And in Korea, to get back to your point, what is starting to happen is we're seeing the generation that's really going to be the generation that matters. The older generation is still making their kimchi in the way they ever did, a lot of them, but they can't get their children to take an interest to learn how to do it. And so what you're saying is the danger. You know, pretty soon the, the machines come in and this homogenization and pretty soon, well, it's got to be pasteurized. We just passed a law, no living microbes in your kimchi anymore. And that is the difference between night and day. Some of the healthiest traditions and foods I have ever encountered have to do with fermentation. And that has to do with alchemy. And that has to do with the science of the natural world or doing scientific things, but only within what the scope of nature will allow without overstepping your bounds and doing damage. And so the example I like to use is here in the United States, for the average person who's not a vegan, maybe, and most people who are vegan can still remember a time when they weren't. If you go to a McDonald's and you eat their meal with their hamburger and their fries and their Coke, and you wait till 30 minutes after you've eaten it, do you feel better or worse from having eaten that meal? Now, to this day, here in Rhode Island even, I can go to a Japanese restaurant and have, say, sushi or miso soup or any number of things. The difference is, is half an hour after I've eaten, I feel better for having had eaten. Every time I have miso soup, I feel that way. Often when I have sushi, 
um, because I don't really eat mammals. Uh, I'm not completely vegetarian, damn near, but when I do eat meat, it's either fish or fowl, um, and that's the way I choose to operate. My point here is you can go out today and test it. Go ahead. Go to a McDonald's, which I will tell you right now is not food. McDonald's is not food, but if you choose to eat that, pay attention. How do you feel 30 minutes after the fact? Do you feel like you just swallowed a lead weight? Do you feel sluggish? Do you feel dim-witted? Well, of course you do because you are what you eat. And this is where the Asian traditions really have quite a bit to offer back into our societies. And it's not just Asian. It's just the ones that I'm most familiar with. There are older cultures all over the world that have versions of what we're saying, even in India. And any place you go where there's a market, where living foods are being offered, fresh produce, any version of what we will call fermented foods, which soy sauce, miso, cheeses, there's a whole litany of them. These are among the healthiest foods uh, that you'll get your hands on, as far as I know. Well, can I share, can I share a recipe with you um, of a thing we call fermented plant juice? Sure. So basically what we do is go out to, um, you know, the garden or, or just the wild crafting, you know, weeds around your house. And early in the morning, if you pick just the growing tips of one specific plant, you'll get all the vital growth hormones. And then you take that and you mix it with about half to one third sugar. Very, very similar to making um, kimchi. Um, and you, you kind of uh, knead the sugar and this plant material together, and the sugar starts to osmotically draw out the liquid. And this liquid that's drawn out is really like the most vital part of the plant. And, and what's left behind in the material um, is, you know, isn't, isn't that it's, it's just like structural stuff. The body. And, yeah, the body and, is what you're leaving behind. Yeah, and it's kind of like getting the, the blood, for instance, out of the plant. And, and then, then this, this vessel that you have it in is left for three to seven days, depending on your, your temperature. Um, but then that liquid that came out is then fermented. And then, then that liquid is consumable as is. Or if you want to store it longer, we just add more sugar to it so that it becomes shelf-stable. And, and what, what this enables you to do is to use fermentation, which is like, as you were saying, it's a really healthy way to eat things, and to get the juice out of anything. Like, like I, right now I'm looking out in my yard and I see an avocado tree without any fruit on it. But I could take the tips of that early in the morning and ferment that avocado and I could get the nutrition as if I had eaten like the most vital avocado from what otherwise would have been its inedible leaves to me. Boy, you, you guys need to meet up with Phoenix Aurelius. I'd be happy to give you an introduction. I know he's a busy man, but um, does it even matter? I mean, I'll ask a quick question before I respond. Um, do you even have to be concerned with what type of plant you're, you're picking? I mean, some plants are said to be, um, you know, not good for us to eat. They can have an effect. Poisonous and stuff. I, well, well, I can give you an example. <clears throat> There's a flower in Hawaii that's not native. That's called the plumeria flower. And um, it's pretty, I don't know. I, I feel like if you saw a picture of it, you might recognize I, it. I know it the has plumeria well. I, I, I used to grow it. It has a beautiful scent. Yeah, and there's there's these trees on the on the other side of the Kona, the the sunny side of the island where they, they grow really well where it's not as wet and um yeah, I, I collected and fermented them and they they are said to be poisonous. People, you know, I get that all the time. They it is said to be poisonous. I've also researched that the sap is like part of the poison, but it's also beneficial for like centipede stings and bee stings and things like that. But basically fermented the, the, the flowers, just like Drake described. And um, man, it was super tasty. It tastes just like it smells. And um, wow. Yeah. St still living so, to tell this. So I can cool actually address story. that. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I interrupt you? No, no. Okay. So what I was going to point out is it sounds to me that you're explaining a version of alchemy based on these three principles. All living things have three 
components, the body, the soul, and the spirit. For plants, the spirit, in almost every case that I'm aware of, would be ethyl alcohol, which is why when you go into a liquor store and you see spirits labeled on all those bottles, that's why. Um, there, there would be no alcohol to drink. There would be no fermentation without the ideas that are encapsulated in alchemy or spagyrics, the alchemy of the plant kingdom. So when he began to describe what was going on, if I followed you correctly, the sugar becomes the food which feeds the process of fermentation. The hard parts that were left behind that probably get discarded would be considered the body. So um, if you use these philosophical principles of the body, the soul, and the spirit, the soul and spirit being different, in a human being you might think of it like this, when I inhale a breath, that's my spirit. The idea that when a baby is come into the world and that first breath is when the spirit ingests, the soul already being there in every cell, which is the body. So I think what you have described is a perfect analogy for the ideas that people can fuse alchemy. Most people have been taught that alchemy is this evil witchcraft, which is complete nonsense. It's simply the natural science for the natural world. It doesn't go beyond what nature will allow. It doesn't do damage to nature or try to force nature in some bizarre way like modern chemistry. See, if the example I can cite here is well illustrated with how pharmaceutical companies make their so-called medicines. In alchemy, if someone was going to make a remedy to try to heal someone, there would be three overarching processes in most cases. The breaking apart the purification of the parts, and then what's called the alchemical wedding or the recombination of those purified parts. The idea being that a human being has this special ability to take the perfected nature and exalt it a little bit more than it already was when they found it. And when you go over to what modern chemistry has brought us and, and the, pharma, the pharmaceuticals, I did research and I realized they're only doing the first, most of the time, the first process. They do the breaking apart. There is no purification or alchemical wedding or recombination. And it illustrates what you guys are talking about, I think. And I'll say it again. Um, you guys should, should at least reach out to Phoenix Aurelius. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I really love that suggestion and would appreciate um yeah maybe a, a yeah a connection from like an introduction well, you, you might be able to share yeah. some of your biome because one of the things he's making <laughs> is meant to revive um you know this or it, maybe that's not the right way to say it because clearly the biome you have is not the biome that should be in his area maybe i was thinking about that improperly but you could let him know how you're utilizing the bi biome that is correct for the area you are maybe that's a better way for me to express it well, the cool, the cool yeah, thing. Yeah, so it's it's. Go ahead, David. It, uh, I was just gonna s say that these practices are indigenous to wherever you're farming, so right. they're local to wherever you are. So the microbes in Hawaii wouldn't suit right. you in New York, and vice versa. But you basically want to be able to collect wherever you're growing, wherever you're farming, wherever your intention is, your garden is, and but you also want to collect from undisturbed forested areas even preferred like the higher the higher you go in in elevation so at least 150 meters above from where you're at is idea is is a good place but you can even go much further and you you talked about in your in your research about the polynesians in hawaii and how their culture doesn't really it, it's actually like this almost original thing and and this is just a theory of mine but if if at one point the continents were way different and they were shifted and there was this big land mass of, of, of people and they, whatever you want to call them, Lumeria, Mu, you know, wherever, whatever it is, this ancient advanced civilization, it would be kind of where Hawaii is. And, and the big Island of Hawaii, there's the, the mountain is one of them is Mauna Kea and it's the biggest mountain in the world from sea level it's even bigger than Everest so it's it's literally and when you go to the top it, it's like the Va'akea it's it's or the Va not the Va'akea the Va'akua and it's like the realm the realm of the gods and it's like this different place you're above the clouds and you're you're in this space where heaven and earth literally meet and they become they become one and it has this this energy and this 
this auspiciousness to it just every time you're you're able to go to go up there and and I feel like there's so, so by collecting at higher and higher elevations and being able to like share that with people all, all, all around, that would be great. Like if there was like a, a whole tribe of people that were going to all the spots in America where the national parks or wherever it's forested or, or even wild and wilderness and being able to kind of collect, yeah, and preserve this biology. That, there's, there's where people, technology. But, but it's, all, it's all local. Yeah, yeah, I started to speak about it. I caught myself as I began to, to speak there that I was expressing it in the wrong way. But what you just described, technology would actually help because as you collected it, you could put the G GPS location of where it was collected and keep a solid record of matching the, the biome to the, the specific place it was collected. But, you know, I, it's so, so, such a synchronicity as I was sitting here speaking with you, my wife brought in living green juice for me to consume. Um, so many people don't realize that even in just our artificial world, the juicers that you'll get at Walmart, are, they're, they're killing your juice. Those spinning blades, the heat, those tiny meshes destroy every cell. Um, and so I'm using the new Pure Juicer. It used to be Norwalk was the only one we could get our hands on. These are not cheap juicers, but what they do is they extract all the nutrient and then press the juice away from the body so you're left this sawdusty dry pulp where all the juice has been extracted but that juice that you're ingesting literally has life in it the life essence is a plant the moment you finished speaking I was finishing drinking eight ounces of green juice based on the Gerson recipes and right now I feel as if my whole being was just lifted up a couple notches I feel better for having done it and the ideas that you guys are expressing are so critically important now because all the nonsense and all the things we don't like that we see going on in the world, much of it is based on culture's inability to think clearly because of all the fluoride, because of all the lack of nutrition, because of just all the chemically based things that go on in our world. Even the underarm deodorant that so many people are using are all reducing the function of a human body. And when your function is reduced, your abilities are reduced. And it's not too late for people to recognize this and clean up their act, get closer to nature, and function at a higher level. And it is my assertion that if our society was functioning at a higher level like they were prior to World War II, um, much of this nonsense would not fly. It would just be unacceptable. So, so I want to go a little bit further into the the myth of this Hawaiian stuff and being a root race if uh, so so what I what I've heard is that there's been you know a few collapses around the earth several times and that maybe why the Hawaiians register as a root race is if you look at the agricultural systems they had implemented here on Hawaii Island they were really designed to clean the water re-establish re the watersheds and rebuild the fisheries. So, so my my example for this, and my my way my way to go further on this, is it really it really came to me by studying the Lo'i system, which if you're familiar with Hawaiian um, cultivation of the taro plant or the kalo plant. I am. I'm actually familiar with what you're about to speak of, and I know that there's a version of it for the, the sea life, too. Well, well, so what they would do is they would take the water out of the river, and then they would <clears throat> put it into these shallow um, waterbeds. And what happens is when the, when the water temperature rises a little bit, because you, you take it out of this cool river, and you put it into this shallow floodplain, is that the... Um, the like heavy metals and these sort of things will drop out of the water. Hmm. And in, in what I understand is, you know, a, a lot of people will tell you they use the flooded irrigation system to control weeds. But what I believe these ancient systems actually were, were water cleaning devices that as the water went through that they had, um, really, um, you know, the, the temperature would rise, the things would drop out of solution, so these heavy metals fall into the soil, but the taro plant 
is one it has this special microorganism that lives in it that's just incredible at disassembling toxins. And also the same thing if you look at the rice plant, which was cultivated in these flood systems, that these are actually ancient um, water cleansing devices where the microbes that colonize the roots of rice and taro are actually these, um, you know, these really, they, they're, they're like some of the best for cleaning things up when you're talking about bioremediating. But what we do today in the, in the Kahlo cultivation is we, we forgot that, that it was there to clean and that it was about the secret society microbes that were there to clean. And instead we add these fertilizers to boost our plants because our objective isn't to clean the water. It's to, you know, grow the, the, you know, get the highest cost or money for this taro that I grew. So I'm going to buy the cheap fossil fuel inputs, which decimate the biome, which poison the water, which cause more runoff. And we forgot these systems that are like rice farming and taro farming. When the, when the indigenous people had them, were actually for cleansing the earth. Well, you know, I think what you're pointing out here is the hubris of what modern science has become. Um, I think we can agree, at least in this group, that the best you're ever going to do is already provided in nature. And the idea that some scientific method is going to be better than nature, uh, you're starting to, to demonstrate it. Science comes in and says, well, we want more taro, so we're going to put all these fertilizers down. And they do, in fact, get more taro. But what they've done is they've destroyed part of what they had going on before they did that. And the truth is, is when you go out where taro grows naturally in the world, there's nobody out there fertilizing it. Nature is providing everything. So I think, you know, it's on the face of it, it's obvious that the older cultures observed what was going on in the natural world. They, in a sense, became one, one with it. Like, how, how can we describe uh, a culture 300 years ago understanding that there's some microorganism doing this thing? Maybe they don't think of it that way, but they sure as heck know that there is a process underway here that's cleaning the water or doing this or doing that or the other thing. And I think that's one of the main problems is the Western world has spent so much time trying to convince everyone that science is the apex of everything. But you see, it's become a bit of a religion on its own. So many theories, those are not proven. Those are just ideas. Even gravity is only a theory. As a matter of fact, gravity is a theory based on a theory. And yet we act as if it's fact. It's not fact. A fact is a law like a law of nature, that would be a fact. It can be demonstrated endlessly, it can be described, it's understood. But what we have seen is science replacing spiritual concerns of human beings, and this is critically important, because you will find that groups of human beings with higher spiritual concerns seem to be more closely tied to nature and seem to be able to do more with nature. And I think that's where we get lost a lot in the modern age with modern scientific ideas and modern religious ideas. Uh, so many times they serve as division tools and so many times they forget to remember that nature gives us everything we need. Yeah, I, I, always, I always thought, I always say science is the study of nature. So like nature's supreme and just by that statement, <laughs> It should be. Um, <laughs> they try to convince us all that somehow science is above nature. We can, we can control nature. We can own it. We can force nature to do what we want. And I'm here to tell you my point of view is the other way around. Nature and the sky clock is all there is. And if you want to do the best a human being can do or the best that any given society can do, you learn the truths that are provided in nature, um, which, by the way, is the basis for all those myths. You ever consider why, like, why do we have these archetypes which are housed in, like, Greek myth as an example, because apparently that's all the further backwards we can see. Why do these archetypes always remain? Why are they always as important in the day you see them as the day that they were created? Well, I'll tell you why. Because those myths learned a truth from nature, then they turned it into a story. And since human beings can't invent truth, they can only recognize it, that's why these myths are so important, even to this day. But you see, what's being pointed out here is the recognition 
of the importance of the natural world. It's near, it's perfect from our point of view. And by the way, in this age where everyone is so tired of being lied to, there, there is no lie in nature. If you learn something from nature, you don't even have to give it a second thought. It's true. There's no lie there. There just isn't. Well, that's it for our free episode. So join us at www.microbialsecret.org for the full episode and join the Microbial Secret Society. So uh, may the beneficial microbes be with you. Aloha.